0: Brief in Opposition to Special Counsel Jack Smith's Petition for writ of Certiorari Before Judgment in United States v. Donald J. Trump 1. Introduction This case presents a fundamental question at the heart of our democracy, whether a president may be criminally prosecuted for his official acts. The paramount public importance of that question calls for it to be resolved in a cautious, deliberate manner, not at a breakneck speed. In 234 years of American history, no president ever faced criminal prosecution for his official acts. Until 19 days ago, no court had ever addressed whether immunity from such prosecution exists. To this day, no appellate court has addressed it. The question stands among the most complex, intricate, and momentous issues that this court will be called on to decide. This court's ordinary review procedures will allow the D.C. Circuit to address this appeal in the first instance, thus granting this court the benefit of an appellate court's prior consideration of these historic topics and performing the traditional winnowing function that this court has long preferred. Indeed, the D.C. Circuit has already granted highly expedited review of President Trump's appeal over President Trump's opposition, with briefing to be concluded by January 2, 2024, and oral argument scheduled for January 9, 2024. The special counsel urges this court to bypass those ordinary procedures, including the long-standing preference for prior consideration by at least one court of appeals, and rush to decide the issues with reckless abandon. The court should decline that invitation at this time for several reasons. First, the government lacks Article Three and prudential standing to appeal from a district court judgment decided all issues in its favor and thus does not injure it. Because the government is not injured by the decision below, this case does not fall within the narrow class of cases where this court has permitted a prevailing party to appeal from a lower court victory. Second, prudential considerations weigh heavily in favor of allowing the D.C. Circuit to address the issues in this case before this court, consistent with the court's ordinary review procedures. In fact, such lower court consideration is rapidly underway. The D.C. Circuit has expedited President Trump's appeal and scheduled briefing to conclude by January 2, 2024, with oral argument on January 9, 2024. Third, the special counsel identifies no compelling reason for the extraordinary haste he proposes. Instead, he vaguely asserts that the public interest favors resolution on a dramatically accelerated timetable to ensure that President Trump may be brought to trial in the next few months. In doing so, he confuses the public interest with the manifest partisan interest in ensuring that President Trump will be subjected to a months-long criminal trial at the height of a presidential campaign where he is the leading candidate and the only serious opponent of the current administration. The combination of an almost three-year wait to bring this case and the special counsel's current demand for extraordinary expedition, supported by the vaguest of justifications, creates a compelling inference of partisan motivation. Fourth, the case law the special counsel cites does not support his request. Most notably in United States v. Nixon, 1974, this court did not face the same historically blank slate that it confronts here. In Nixon, there had been extensive, thoughtful consideration of presidential privilege applied to criminal subpoenas, including multiple appellate decisions over nearly two centuries between United States v. Burr, 1807, and Nixon v. Sirica, 1973. Here, the sum total of judicial grappling with this issue is one 19-day-old district court opinion— This history counsels in favor of allowing the D.C. Circuit to address this appeal first in the ordinary course. Fifth, the district court's ruling below was issued nine days after the close of briefing due to the special counsel's insistence on speedy resolution. The result was a hasty analysis of complex issues that overlooks binding authority and commits manifold errors, thus illustrating the hazards of rushed consideration of these questions. This appeal presents momentous historic questions. An erroneous denial of a claim of presidential immunity from criminal prosecution was unquestionably warrants this Court's review. The special counsel contends that it is of imperative public importance that respondents' claims of immunity be resolved by this Court. That does not entail, however, that the Court should take the case before the lower Courts complete their review. Every jurisdictional and prudential consideration calls for this Court to allow the appeal to proceed first in the D.C. Circuit. Haste makes waste is an old adage. It has survived because it is right so often. Jurisdictional Statement The Court lacks jurisdiction to grant the petition because the government lacks Article Three and prudential standing to appeal from a judgment that is entirely favorable to it. The government seeks direct appellate review of a district court decision that granted it all the relief it sought and did not rule against it on any issue. When this court grants certiorari before judgment, it effectively stands in the shoes of the Court of Appeals. A party seeking certiorari before judgment to review a district court decision, therefore, must have standing to appeal the decision to the Court of Appeals. Here, the government, which prevailed on every disputed issue below, could not have filed its own appeal to the D.C. Circuit. The government suffers no injury from the district court's decision and lacks standing to appeal from it. In rare instances, this court may grant a petition for review from a prevailing party, but that victor must suffer an ongoing traceable, redressable injury from the otherwise favorable decision of the lower court. This court's cases demand that a prevailing party who appeals must suffer ongoing injury, causation, and redressability from the challenged decision. In cases where a prevailing party's standing to appeal a favorable decision has been recognized, the ruling challenged on appeal decided a significant issue against that party in a way that inflicted ongoing injury to the party. Thus, an official whose conduct is deemed unconstitutional but is granted qualified immunity, though prevailing on the merits, suffers an ongoing injury from the decision a de facto restriction on his or her freedom to engage in such conduct in the future. Likewise, class-action plaintiffs who have a nominal judgment in their favor entered against their will still have standing to appeal from an order-denying class certification, as such denial deprives them of a significant procedural right. Similarly, an alleged infringer who challenges a patent's validity may appeal from an order upholding the patent's validity but holding that his conduct had not infringed it. Each such decision mixes an unfavorable ruling on an important issue, one with ongoing practical consequences to the appealing party, with a favorable ruling on another ground that resulted in a favorable judgment below. Not so here. The District Court denied President Trump's claims of presidential immunity and double jeopardy in toto, wrongfully holding that there is no presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for official acts at all, and that there is no bar to criminal prosecution from President Trump's Senate acquittal. The District Court did not rule against the judgment on any disputed issue. The judgment, therefore, does not have prospective effect of an adverse nature on the government. No injury to the government is fairly traceable to the district court's decision. The only injury the special counsel asserts in this appeal, i.e. possible delay of the trial date, even if it is cognizable at all, is not caused by the district court's decision in the prosecution's favor on all issues. Instead, the government contends that this Court's rulings in Griggs and Coinbase, which require a stay of proceedings pending appeal, are inconvenient and therefore harmful. The government may be injured by President Trump's appeal, but it is not injured by the district court's judgment, and thus it may not file its own appeal from that judgment. Moreover, even if the court had jurisdiction to grant the petition under Article Three, which it does not, the court should not exercise it here, under long-standing rules of prudential standing. Ordinarily, only a party aggrieved by a judgment or order of a district court may exercise the statutory right to appeal therefrom. A party who receives all that he has sought— generally is not aggrieved by the judgment affording the relief and cannot appeal from it. This court's practice reflects a settled refusal to entertain an appeal by a party on an issue as to which he prevailed. The special counsels bare political desire to have an earlier, potential trial date, does not place this case in a special category when it comes to this Court's review of appeals brought by winners. And, as discussed in further detail below, every other prudential consideration weighs against the overhasty review sought by the Special Counsel. The Special Counsel ignores this issue in his jurisdictional statement, an omission that illustrates the hazards of expedited briefing. His jurisdictional statement merely cites Biden v. Nebraska, 2022, and United States v. Nixon, 1974, with a parenthetical note that, in each, certiorari before judgment was granted to the party that prevailed in the district court. Neither case, however, addressed the prevailing party's Article III or prudential standing to appeal from a victorious ruling in the trial court. Drive-by jurisdictional rulings of this sort have no precedential effect. Indeed, Camretta and Roper post-date Nixon, but neither case discussed Nixon in analyzing appellate standing. Moreover, in Nebraska, the state respondents did not oppose the government's request for certiorari before judgment which was embedded in an application to vacate the Eighth Circuit's nationwide injunction pending appeal, and so the issue was never raised or discussed by the parties or the court. The state respondents agreed that if the court thinks the application raises close questions, it should grant certiorari before judgment. In short, the special counsel cites no case supporting the government's appellate standing here. Statement 1. The indictment alleges purely official acts. On August 1, 2023, President Trump was indicted on four counts related to his attempts to dispute the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. The indictment does not charge President Trump with responsibility for the events at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Instead, it charges President Trump with acts of political speech and advocacy in disputing the election's outcome performed while President Trump was still in office. The indictment alleges that President Trump engaged in five types of conduct. First, it alleges that President Trump made a series of tweets and other public statements on matters of paramount federal concern, disputing the outcome of the 2020 federal election and contending that the election was tainted by fraud and irregularities. Second, the indictment alleges that President Trump communicated with the acting attorney general and officials at the U.S. Department of Justice which he oversaw as part of his official duties as president, our country's chief executive, about investigating election crimes and possibly appointing a new acting attorney general. These include allegations of a series of communications urging the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general to investigate widespread reports of election fraud and allegations of deliberations during Oval Office meetings about whether to replace the acting Attorney General, a Cabinet-level officer, constitutionally appointed by the President. Third, the indictment alleges that President Trump communicated with state officials about the administration of the federal election and urged them to exercise their official responsibilities in accordance with extensive information that the 2020 presidential election was widely tainted by fraud and irregularities. Fourth, the indictment alleges that President Trump communicated with the Vice President in his capacity as President of the Senate, the Vice President's official staff, and other members of Congress— to urge them to exercise their official duties with respect to the election certification in accordance with President Trump's contention that the election was tainted by fraud and irregularities. Fifth, the indictment alleges that other individuals organized slates of alternate electors from seven states to provide a justification for the vice president to exercise his official duties in the manner urged by President Trump. According to the indictment, these alternate slates of electors were designed to allow the President, in his communications with the Vice President, to justify the exercise of the Vice President's authority to certify the election in Defendant's favor. 2. President Trump's Motions to Dismiss on immunity and double jeopardy grounds. On October 5, 2023, President Trump moved to dismiss the indictment on grounds of presidential immunity. President Trump contended that 1. The doctrine of absolute presidential immunity from civil liability for official acts extends to criminal prosecution as well, and 2. All the conduct alleged in the indictment falls within the scope of immunity because it lies within the outer perimeter of presidential duties. On the first question, President Trump offered a series of reasons to recognize presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for official acts. First, as emphasized in Fitzgerald, the doctrine of presidential immunity is rooted in the separation of powers under the Constitution. The president occupies a unique position in the constitutional scheme, and the president's absolute immunity predicated on his official acts constitutes a functionally mandated incident of the president's unique office, rooted in the constitutional tradition of the separation of powers and supported by our history. The president is the chief constitutional officer of the executive branch entrusted with supervisory and policy responsibilities of utmost discretion and sensitivity. Under the doctrine of separated powers, neither a federal nor a state prosecutor may sit in judgment over a president's official acts, which are vested in the presidency alone. Likewise, no state or federal court has jurisdiction to sit in criminal judgment over them. As Chief Justice Marshall emphasized in Marbury v. Madison, by the Constitution of the United States, the President is invested with certain important political powers, in the exercise of which he is to use his own discretion, and is accountable only to his country in his political character, and to his own conscience. The acts of such an officer, as an officer, can never be examinable by the courts. Second, President Trump argued that the Impeachment Judgment Clause presupposes that a president is immune from prosecution for official acts unless he is first impeached and convicted by the Senate. The clause provides that judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. The clause's reference to the party convicted implies that the party acquitted is not subject to prosecution for the same conduct. Thus, the clause's plain implication is that criminal prosecution, like removal from the presidency, and disqualification from other offices is a consequence that can come about only after the Senate's judgment, not during or prior to the Senate trial. Third, President Trump cited evidence from the founding era reinforcing his interpretation. For example, Alexander Hamilton wrote that the criminal prosecution of a president for official acts may occur only after impeachment and conviction by the Senate. The President of the United States would be liable to be impeached, tried, and, upon conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors, removed from office, and would afterwards be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. Likewise, in Marbury, Chief Justice Marshall wrote, by the Constitution of the United States, the President is invested with certain important political powers in the exercise of which he is to use his own discretion and is accountable only to his country in his political character and to his own conscience. When the President acts in cases in which the Executive possesses a constitutional or legal discretion, nothing can be more perfectly clear than then his acts are only politically examinable. Fourth, in Fitzgerald, this court emphasized that its immunity decisions have been informed by the common law. At common law, official immunity meant, first and foremost, immunity from criminal prosecution. Immunity from civil liability was of secondary concern. For example, at common law, the privilege of legislative immunity was not born primarily of a desire to avoid private suits, but rather to prevent intimidation by the executive and accountability before a possibly hostile judiciary. Preventing the instigation of criminal charges against critical or disfavored legislators was the chief fear that led to the recognition of that doctrine of immunity. Fifth, President Trump argued that the 234-year tradition of not prosecuting presidents for official acts supports his claim of immunity. American history abounds with examples of presidents who were accused by political opponents of committing crimes through their official acts. These extend at least from John Quincy Adams' alleged corrupt bargain in appointing Henry Clay as Secretary of State to President George W. Bush's allegedly false claim to Congress that Saddam Hussein possessed stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction to President Obama's alleged authorization of a drone strike that targeted and killed a U.S. citizen and his teenage son, also a U.S. citizen, located abroad, among many other examples. In each such case, the president's political opponents vehemently accused that president of criminal behavior in his official acts. Yet no president was ever prosecuted until this year. The unbroken tradition of not exercising the formidable power of criminally prosecuting a president for official acts, despite ample motive and opportunity to do so over centuries, implies that the power does not exist. The constitutional practice tends to negate the existence of the power asserted here. Sixth, President Trump pointed to analogous immunity doctrines for legislators and judges, for example, this court recognized, in Spalding v. Vilas that the doctrine of absolute judicial immunity extends to both civil suit and indictment. Likewise, in the context of legislative immunity, this court has held that immunity for legislative acts extends to both civil liability and criminal prosecution. Seventh, President Trump noted that concerns of public policy, especially as illuminated by our history and the structure of our government, support the recognition of criminal immunity. The presidency involves especially sensitive duties. It requires bold and unhesitating action. The threat of future prosecution could seriously cripple the proper and effective administration of public affairs as entrusted to the executive branch of the government. Defending his decisions, often years after they were made, could impose unique and intolerable burdens on the president. The prospect of politically motivated criminal prosecution poses a greater deterrent to bold action than mere civil liability. Thus, immunity is particularly appropriate to protect the president's maximum ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office. President Trump then argued that each of the five categories of acts alleged in the indictment falls within the outer perimeter of his official duties as president. Separately, President Trump filed a motion to dismiss based on constitutional grounds, which argued, inter alia, that the indictment is barred by the Impeachment Judgment Clause and principles of double jeopardy, because President Trump was impeached and acquitted by the U.S. Senate for the same and closely related conduct. 3. The District Court's Decision On December 1, 2023, nine days after the close of briefing on the relevant motions, the District Court issued its decision denying both of President Trump's motions. On the question of presidential immunity, the District Court held that the doctrine of absolute presidential immunity does not shield a former president from federal criminal prosecution for his official acts— and thus the court denied President Trump's claim of immunity in toto. Because the district court held that the relevant immunity does not exist, it did not address whether the acts alleged in the indictment fall within the scope of the president's official duties. Regarding President Trump's double jeopardy argument, the district court held that neither traditional double jeopardy principles nor the impeachment judgment clause provide that a prosecution following impeachment acquittal violates double jeopardy. On December 7, 2023, President Trump filed a timely notice of appeal. On December 11, 2023, the special counsel filed a motion to expedite proceedings in the D.C. Circuit and a petition for certiorari before judgment in this court. The D.C. Circuit granted the special counsel's motion to expedite the appeal, ordered accelerated briefing to close by January 2, 2024, and scheduled oral argument for January 9, 2024. <laughs> We've come to the end of part one of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.